My name is Greg Fondell. It's an honor to be with you again and uh, to have a chance to stand in front of you. Um, and I'm going with Ben's plan, too. I'm just going to wing it today. <laughs> no, I, 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 can't, I can't wing it as well as Ben did, so we wrote a few notes anyway. But uh, I'd like to ask you to bow with me in a word of prayer. Loving and eternal God, by your Spirit, we ask that you would guide our minds which are often dull and empty. By your Spirit, quicken our souls, which are often listless and lethargic. By your Spirit, melt our hearts, which are often cold and indifferent. In you we put our trust. In you we have our hope for this life and for the life to come. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So, who have you bumped into lately? I want you to think for a minute about the multitude of people, strangers, acquaintances, whose paths have crossed yours in the past week. Maybe the barista or server at your favorite coffee shop. Maybe a mechanic or salesperson who worked on your car. Maybe the quirky characters that you've passed along the street. Maybe some parents who you made small talk with at a baseball game. I read a book not long ago that suggests that these everyday people these unremarkable encounters can have a profound effect on our health, on our happiness, on our success in life. The book is entitled Consequential Strangers, The Power of People Who Don't Seem to Matter But Really Do. The author, Melinda Blau, documents all the ways that strangers and acquaintances can affect our lives how a friendly greeting can change someone's outlook on the day, how a simple act of service can really improve the quality of our lives, how a casual conversation can lead to a new job or a new romance, how someone from another ethnicity or social class can expand your horizons, and even how a fender bender can be a next step on your spiritual journey. Today's passage, we're going to meet one of these consequential strangers, someone who didn't seem to matter to anybody except Jesus. But before we read the story, I'd like you to think of two or three people, people I'm describing, people who are part of your everyday world, but who at this point are strangers to you. Have a picture of a couple of faces in your mind, as well as the times and the places that you typically might bump into them. So let's take a look at Mark 3, 1 through 6. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely so, to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, 
Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely healed, restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now in order to appreciate this story, we have to understand that keeping the Sabbath was the distinguishing mark of spirituality for the Israelites. Of all the religious activities a devout Jew might engage in, prayer, giving offerings, making sacrifices, fasting, observing the holy days, the most common and the most obvious was the act of Sabbath observance. It was a day of worship and rest. It was a day of being, not doing. Therefore, no work was allowed. So as the story opens, Jesus is doing what every devout person would be doing on that day. He's attending a worship service. Now, it might be worth asking at this point, what do you think is the distinguishing mark for God's people today? What is the most common and obvious feature of the spirituality of a serious Christian's life? Probably going to church, right? But is going to church an accurate understanding of what Christianity is all about? Is that what Jesus had in mind when he told us to be salt and light in the world? So let's go on with the story. The next thing we're told is that there was a man with a shriveled hand in the synagogue that day. Now chances are that he was there every Sabbath day. Remember, this is a local synagogue serving a small community. And I doubt that they had a visitor's parking lot with reserved spaces out in front of the building. It would have been the same people sitting in the same seats week after week. Now, we're not told the details of the man's physical condition, whether this was a disability that he had had since birth or the result of an injury suffered later in his life. But his condition was not a secret to anyone in the synagogue. It would have been very obvious every time the men lifted their hands in prayer in the customary fashion. But chances are they had gotten so used to seeing this man that they really didn't notice him anymore. We're told that Jesus' critics were present that day. Jesus had only been an itinerant rabbi for a short time, but he had already rubbed some of the religious authorities the wrong way. These Pharisees were looking for something to pin on him. They were hoping Jesus would heal the injured man so that they could accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. Healing was work, the Pharisees decided, and work was not allowed on the Sabbath. The law did allow for exceptions in cases of emergency, but this wasn't an emergency. The man had lived with this condition for a time. He certainly could live with it for another day. 
When Jesus asked this man to stand up, these leaders must have been looking, licking their chops. He had fallen right into their trap. Now, why do you think that Jesus asked the man to stand up? Was he trying to embarrass him? I think Jesus simply wanted people to really see him, to pay attention to him, to think about his condition. As I mentioned, the congregation had probably gotten very used to seeing this man so that they really didn't notice him that much anymore, didn't notice his condition. The truth is, they probably didn't want to notice him. He made them uncomfortable. Good religious folk trained themselves not to look at people with disabilities. The common belief was that those kinds of conditions were the result of some sin that he or his parents had committed. It's the same assumption that was made about Job in the Old Testament. Where there is great suffering, there must be great sin. N.T. Wright says, this is a comfortable thing to believe if you happen to be well-off, well-fed, healthy in body and mind. In other words, if nobody can accuse you of some secret previous sin. Now before we condemn our ancestors of being so unenlightened, let's be honest about some of our own suspicions. Haven't we also asked similar questions? Why is this person in poverty? Why is this person addicted? Why is this person suffering? Could it be some poor decisions on their part? Or maybe their parents made some bad choices and they're now trapped in those hard circumstances. But Jesus isn't interested in any of those suspicions. He knew that God had not cursed this man with a disability to show his judgment. God had sent his son to do works of healing to show his glory. So Jesus asked the man to stand up in front of everyone so that they would look again, so that they would see what he saw. Jesus saw two things. First, he saw the man's problem. That shriveled hand undoubtedly made it more difficult for him to make a living. It also would have limited some of his activities with his family and in the community. Because of social and religious stigmas, it made him an outcast. While most people were looking the other way, Jesus was looking deeper. He was thinking about that man's life experience. He saw his problem. The second thing that Jesus saw was his potential. He recognized that this man was created in the image of God to glorify God. In Matthew's account of this same encounter, he had some additional words that Jesus spoke. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? 
Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus saw everything that this man was meant to be. And he wanted him to live the life that could be. If the physical and social limitations that accompanied his condition were removed, well, what a difference that could make. When Jesus looked at people, he looked at them long enough to see their problems and their potential. What life was like for them and what it could be like for them if the kingdom of God would arrive in their lives. On a very practical level, doing good begins right there. Seeing people as Jesus sees them. Doing good is not really about just deeds. It's really about people. Doing good is not about following rules. It's about relating to people in Christ-like ways. In the film, The Soloist, a newspaper reporter, Steve Lopez, wrote for the Los Angeles Times. He stumbled upon a homeless man playing a violin in a city park. At first he was amused by this stranger, but then he noticed that the man was making beautiful music on a violin with only two strings. He began asking questions, and he learned that the man had a name, Nathaniel Ayers, Jr., And Lopez kept talking to him, and he discovered that Nathaniel had talent, that he actually studied at the Juilliard School of Music. And as the conversation deepened, the reporter found that Nathaniel had a story, a mother who believed in him, a father who abandoned him, and voices in his head that he just couldn't silence. He was a schizophrenic. Most importantly, Lopez learned that Nathaniel had dignity, that he needed friendship, not charity. Friends, the truth is, everyone that we meet has a name. Every person has a story. Every human being has talent and dignity and worth. There are no inconsequential strangers. Everyone matters. They matter to God and they'll matter to us if we take the time to recognize their problems and their potential. Understand that it is not about feeling sorry for others. You take this man with the withered hand, there's no indication that his life was miserable or unhappy. He wasn't a beggar. He was able to worship with the community. His life was just not all that it could be. And Jesus wanted to do something about that. Seeing people as Jesus sees them requires thinking about what life is like for them and what it could be like if the kingdom arrived for them. In the past few days, knowing that this message was coming up, I've been trying to open my eyes a little wider to some people and situations that I encounter. 
been trying to jot down some of the needs that I see. This experiment has kind of helped me a little bit to maybe see others a little more deeply, a little more thoughtfully, trying to smile more, trying to look others in the eye, to ask their names, to maybe do some good thing without any strings attached. I'm wondering about what some of the people that I've met, what their days must be like, and what might make their lives a little easier, a little better, a little bit more like what God has in mind for them. See, when you start looking at people that way, there are no inconsequential strangers. There are no unremarkable encounters. Having seen this man with the shriveled hand, Jesus couldn't just walk away. He wanted to do something to make his life better. Not just for his own sake, but for the sake of those who were also looking on. He wanted them to grasp that being God's people in the world was not merely about showing up in church on the Sabbath. So Jesus asked a provocative question. Jesus was often a provocateur, somebody who created some tension for a purpose. Now he didn't have to perform that healing right then and there. It wasn't a life or death situation. It certainly could have waited until after sundown and then there would have been no controversy at all. But Jesus couldn't allow this teachable moment to pass. In fact, this is the only time in the Gospels when Jesus actually initiates a healing without being prompted, without being asked. So after asking the man to stand up, he posed a question to the congregation and to his critics in particular. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life? Or to kill. Jesus challenged the Pharisees' understanding, not just of what the Sabbath is all about, but what God is all about. The Jewish people rightly believed that the Sabbath was God's day. So they ought to spend that day doing things that God cares about. The Pharisees thought that they knew what God cared about. Religious things like prayer and Bible reading and worship attendance. So they narrowly defined the Sabbath in that way. But Jesus wanted them to understand that the thing God really cares about is people. Their healing, their reconciliation, their wholeness. And that's why God created the Sabbath in the first place. Mark 2, 27, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So yes, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In fact, doing good is what the Sabbath is all about. Friends, there's an important lesson for us. Not about what we can or can't do on the Sabbath but about what God desires from his people, about what it means to be Christ followers. 
See, it turns out that God is less interested in religious activity than we thought. He wants us to join him in his work in the world. He wants us to care about the things that he cares about most, expressing love and care to the consequential strangers that we meet every day. Doing good is one of the most Christ-like, God-honoring things that we can do, we can ever do. But it might not always look all that religious. There's a church in New Jersey that goes by the name of Liquid. They believe that the church ought to be fluid rather than solid. Living water that flows into people's lives and satisfies deep thirst. Recently, the people of Liquid Church found themselves disturbed by the fact that tens of thousands of people, mostly children, were dying every day because of a lack of clean drinking water. Now, they were pretty sure that God cared about that, so they decided to care about it too. And one of the things that they decided to do was to cancel church on a Sunday. Not exactly canceling church, but doing church differently. Instead of having services in their building, they sponsored a 5K race in their town to raise money for wells in Ethiopia. And they held it on Sunday morning because they knew that a lot of non-churchgoers would be most likely to participate at that time. And they ended up with over 1,200 runners. And they raised $250,000, which would save 60,000 lives. So which is lawful on the Sabbath? To hold services or to hold a race? To be religious or to do good? We need to take a fresh look at what it means to be God's people in the world. We need to ask ourselves what it is that we as Christians want to be known for. We need to start seeing people and the world the way that Jesus sees the people in the world. And then do the kinds of things that Jesus would do, even if those things don't always look religious. James 1, 27 puts it like this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So let's finish the story. In front of everyone, Jesus said, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was completely restored. Now I want you to notice that Jesus never actually does any physical labor on the Sabbath. He doesn't rub the man's arm. He doesn't make some sort of ointment. He doesn't lift a finger. All he does is offer an instruction. Stretch out your hand. And when the man does that, his hand is restored. And his life turns for the better. Now remember, this wasn't a life or death situation. This man wasn't necessarily miserable or lost, as far as we can tell. But 
when Jesus saw the man, he couldn't resist doing something good for him. Something that would enrich his life. And that's the second thing that we learn about doing good. Doing good means seeing people as Jesus sees them and then finding a way to bless them. And I'll confess here, for a long time, I really didn't like the word bless. It sounded to me like kind of a dusty old church word, like narthex or unction. (laughs) But when I studied the word, I realized how powerful this is. To bless someone is to confer well-being upon them. It is to say or do something that improves a person's lot in life. We're not Jesus. We can't heal people when they're sick or injured. But we can bless them by driving them to the doctor or sitting with them during a loved one's surgery. We can't bring back someone's loved one but we can bless them with a listening ear, with some kind words of remembrance. We can't multiply loaves and fishes, but we can bless someone with a bag of groceries or a dinner invitation, a donation to Food on the First or a gift to the Sheridan Project, providing snacks for VBS. We can't save people or fix people or undo people's foolish decisions, but we can bless them in all sorts of ways. It will take the time to see them and think about them. We can express creative goodness to make someone's life easier, happier, fuller, closer to what God has in mind for them. There's a church in Cincinnati specializes in this kind of ministry. Vineyard Community Church. Over the last couple of decades, they have found all kinds of simple and surprising ways to bless the people of their city. They hand out free water bottles on hot days. A lot of hot days in Cincinnati. They go to gas stations and small businesses and they offer to clean the bathrooms. They go to lower income neighborhoods and they hand out bags of groceries and boxes of laundry detergents. On Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, they deliver donuts to people who have to work on the holidays. When they go to McDonald's drive throughs they pay for the person's meal in the car behind them, and then they ask the cashier to hand along a little Connect card with a simple message. This is to let you know that God loves you. Now, they tried for a time to offer free car washes, but people were a little suspicious about pulling in. So now they offer $5 car washes. When the driver rolls down the window to pay, they hand him a $5 bill, and they tell them God loves them. 
Now, you might think that some of these things don't sound that religious. You may wonder how many souls have been saved at a McDonald's drive-thru. But after decades of doing good, it's hard to find anyone in Cincinnati who hasn't heard of Vineyard Community Church and been blessed by simple expressions of kindness and compassion. Truth of it is, you don't need to know your Bible inside out to do good. You don't have to give away a fortune, your money, your resources, all your treasures. You don't have to be a raging extrovert. But you do have to open your eyes to the people and the situations around you. Take the time to see what Jesus sees. And then get creative. Find a way to bless people. And leave the rest to God. Let it be so.